Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have an interview with Chris Coe about the Divine Council. Chris is based out of Chicago and has been a Theophilus student for many years and is currently working on one of our upcoming Theophilus Explorations volumes on the Divine Council. As always, we do invite you to check out our show notes. Specifically, we want to make you aware of two upcoming online workshops, one of them on Baptism with Alistair Roberts and the other on Hamlet with Doug Jones. Registration is now open for those courses and you can find more information about them in the show notes. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lighthart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers talking with Chris Coe about the Divine Council. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and our special guest, Chris Coe. We're going to be talking to Chris about his work on the Divine Council. Uh, this is another of uh, our Theopolis Explorations books that is in production. I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but we have a, a new series coming out. I've finished the four volumes of the Theopolis Fundamentals. Uh, that's the completion of that series. Uh, and we're starting a new series beginning this later this year, which will be more focused studies of particular topics in uh, scripture, biblical topics, uh, look at liturgical topics, and then cultural and uh, mission topics. In the last episode, we talked to Dustin Messer, who is producing one of those volumes for us uh, on micro Christendoms and local ministry. Chris Coe is another of the writers in that uh, Theopolis exploration series that uh, is writing on the Divine Council. We ha- are taking a break from our incomplete series on the book of Daniel. We will get back to that. James B. John is out for a couple more weeks yet, teaching on judges. And once he's relieved of that duty. He's going to come back and rejoin us on the last few chapters of Daniel. So stay tuned for that. We're, we haven't we haven't decided to throw in the towel on, on Daniel. We've had just taken a break because uh, we, we didn't feel like we could go on without, uh, without James along with us. So uh, in a few weeks, we'll be back to starting back up in Daniel 10. Chris Coe is a resident of Chicago. He works in Chicago with his brothers at uh, Imagineering, which is, a, which is a marketing and branding agency. He's a student at uh, Reform Seminary. He's been one of the uh, hosts for the Theopolis courses that we've uh, done up in Chicago. He attends a church in the Community of Reformed Evangelical Churches in the Chicago area, and uh, he's been one of the point men for organizing those conferences. Uh, and Chris also went through our certificate program, one of the early students to go through the Theopolis certificate program. And part of that program is to produce a kind of final paper. Students take six courses, intensive courses over the course of as many years as it takes them. Chris finished those six courses and then he uh, worked on a final paper. Typically the final paper is 20 or 25 pages long. Uh, it's like a, like a term paper. Chris went uh, set a very high bar for all future students by producing a study of the Divine Council that was, I don't know, what was it, Chris? Uh, 70, 80, 90 pages uh, in, its, in its first form. Think about ninety-five pages. <laughs> so uh, already in book form when it was submitted uh, for his uh, Theopolis uh, to finish out his Theopolis certificate program, uh, but that's the that's the work he's been building on and uh, extending, and that's going to be the 
content of the uh, one of the Diablo's Explorations volumes. Uh, Chris, before we start talking about the the uh, project, maybe you could say a little bit more about yourself. I, I gave a brief introduction, but maybe you could tell us uh, more about who you are and what you're doing up there in Chicago. Well, I'm living in the uh, Chicago suburbs. I'm married to Ellen. I have uh, uh, two little ones, uh, Stephen, who just turned three, and Eliana, who is about seven months. I attend Christ Covenant Church of Chicago. We are uh, in the CREC, as uh, Peter said, and uh, I'm going through the uh, MABS, Biblical Studies uh, program through RTS. I've been down to uh, Alabama a number of times for uh, Theopolis and and have always enjoyed it. So benefited greatly from uh, from Peter and and uh, Jeff and, uh, and Alistair as well. So really happy to be here and uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, glad you're here. Are you are you in any kind of official position at the church? Are you an intern there or deacon or something? I'm not at this time. No. You're working toward uh, pastoral ministry with your work at RTS. Is that the is that the ultimate aim? Well, right now I'm just trying to get through the uh, the master's program, and then I am involved in the church. Uh, I'm called on to uh, preach from time to time. Uh, I've been an intern there in the past, so I was going to go for the uh, the ordination, but um, decided to uh, focus on finishing the degree first. This is a, a little personal vignette, but uh, I, I I met Chris. I don't remember what year it was, but I was at a conference. <laughs> yeah, I was at a conference at Wheaton, Wheaton College, and uh, I was speaking. But uh, I was there listening to one of the earlier speakers in the conference, and I had sat down on a chair and uh, was getting ready for the for the speaker to begin. And uh, Chris's dad came up, Leo Co, uh, came up and said, "Excuse me, but those those are our seats." I hadn't noticed that they had their their books and notebooks underneath the seat. And I had taken their seats. And my first memory of Chris and his dad were they, them displacing me from <laughs> my seat at a Wheaton conference. Um, we, uh, we quickly realized that we had um, uh, Ralph Smith in common. Ralph Smith is a regular writer for uh, the Theopolis website. He has written a number of books on the Trinity. Uh, he's an old friend, a missionary uh, in, in Tokyo. Uh, and Ralph is married to, I get the, uh, make sure I get this right. Ralph is married to, your father's sister. Is that correct, Chris? That's right. Yes. Everything comes back to family tree. Um, but uh, we, uh, the, the Coes have been uh, wonderful friends. I really enjoyed getting to know them over the years and uh, really, uh, really appreciate uh, Chris and appreciate him being here today. As I said, your, your topic for the certificate program was on the divine council. And maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about how you got interested in that topic and, uh, what you, how you've, how you've worked on, uh, what you've come up with as you've worked on it the last few years. Yeah. Um, well, I first got turned on to the topic actually during a, uh, Theopolis class with, uh, uh, Wes Baker, uh, Wes Baker was up in, I think it was like 2013 and he was teaching, teaching the class on, uh, on missions or holistic mission. And, uh, he covered, Colossians and Deuteronomy 32, or at least from, from a perspective of Deuteronomy 32, 8. And so the uh, Christ overcoming uh, the powers and the principalities and so forth, and related that to De- Deuteronomy 32, 8, in which uh, uh, God let out the, uh, the nations to, as 
according to the number of the, the sons of God. And there's a textual variant there, of course, but um, that, that's how he covered it. And that was kind of really eye-opening for me and kind of led me down this exploration of the divine council. And um, as I interacted with, with some other people, I realized that this was, was kind of a hot topic and decided that I needed to learn more about it. And as I did, I, I found that I didn't like the way that most people were treating it. So I decided to do a study on it. And, uh, and the interesting thing is that at this time uh, that I was doing the study, you know, Paul says, you know, what, what, what do you have that you didn't receive? Right. So I invented nothing new (laughs) and everything that, that I was bringing together. These were themes that I had learned and discovered that I learned from, uh, James Jordan and from uh, from Peter, and as I was writing this uh, the the final paper, I was going through uh, James Jordan's was two hundred and four Revelation lectures, and really Jordan covers this material, but he doesn't cover it in in the uh, the terminology that uh, that most people are are reading it in. So uh, in in Revelation. James Jordan's uh, perspective on the the whole theme of of the book of Revelation, and I think I think yours too, Peter's and uh, Peter and your 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 commentary on Revelation is that it it's about the the angels, the the twenty four elders who are coming off their thrones and are being replaced by the saints, and this is really this is really what what I'm really focused on in the Divine Council um, is the this kind of changing of the guard and the, the elevation of, of humanity in Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate man. Yeah. So maybe you could back up and, and uh, start uh, and, and uh, just define what divine counsel means in this, con- in this conversation. What, uh, what is it that we're talking about? Right. Uh, the divine council is the circle of created beings that God has condescended to take into his his close confidence and he delegates rule to them and uh, he has them carry out his decrees and so forth. And um, and my view is that Adam was really humanity was really uh, created as the image of God. Humanity is the one created to do this, to, to be the divine council, but um, Adam sins and he forfeits his place and, uh, so, so this council is is taken over by by angels and uh, the spiritual beings. Yeah, and you mentioned that you mentioned there are others working on this, and that you were dissatisfied. So, who 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 else has been? Uh, you're talking about Michael Heiser, I assume, as one of the prominent figures. Right, right. Uh, Mike Heiser is really really one that has, has popularized the uh, the the whole theme in biblical theology in uh, in recent memory. Yeah, and what uh, what did you find dissatisfying about the work that's been done by others on the on the topic? Well, the main thing that I find dissatisfying is that they really come at the council not from from so much a uh, a biblical theology, a strictly biblical theology perspective, but more of a comparative theology, comparing it with uh, ancient Near East ancient Near East concepts and uh, literature. 
And and I think uh, I think that's the biggest issue is is reading the scripture through a lens of the ancient Near East, either reading it through uh, Mesopotamian uh, uh, literature or Ugaritic or or what whatever the case may be. Um, and I think I think those things, the ancient Near East literature, can be helpful in you know to paint help fill out a context in some in some ways. But um, really, we need to to stick to the scripture first and let let the scripture interpret itself and uh, see how God is working and how how the Spirit is leading in Scripture, rather than looking at at uh, Israel's pagan neighbors and and figuring out well what did Israel think in comparison to to the uh, the neighbors. Hey, Chris. Um, yeah, you've, I'm sure you've done a lot more reading on Heiser than I have. Um, and I've noticed that I've had parishioners who've either listened to Heiser YouTube videos or lectures or read his book and then seem to, uh, be all in for everything Heiser has to say. Uh, you mentioned the methodological issue here about how he, uh, comes to his conclusions. Well, could you identify maybe two or three things you think that Heiser gets wrong or maybe just guardrails for people who are reading Heisner, uh, in addition to the methodological issue, maybe some of his conclusions that you've found uh, unbiblical or un- unhelpful? Yeah, Heiser's, one of the things that, that was troubling for me about Heiser, I think uh, you know, he has a whole chapter on this, is that he has a pre-commitment to, uh, to the moral freedom of, of the, uh, the divine council, which by moral freedom, he means that that angels and and humans, which he, he takes both to be uh, in the image of God. So angels are are uh, also sharing in the image. I think that's that's a problem itself. Although you know there there's some good scholars who who also take that position, but um, he has a pre-commitment to moral freedom, which which he takes and he almost arrives at a kind of a Molinism and he leans almost into open theism. There's a, there's a whole chapter in unseen realm where he uses the example of first Samuel 23. Uh, and, and it's kind of like, I found it just this bizarre kind of an exposition. And for, for those who, who don't know uh, the story, David, in first Samuel 23, he hears that the Philistines are, are fighting against this town of uh, Kyla. And so he goes and he helps. Well, he asks God if he should go help and, uh, and rescue them. And God says, yeah, go do it. And, and David goes and defeats the Philistines. And then Saul, who is, who is hunting David, hears that he's in Kyla and gathers his army to go get him. And uh, David hears this and he asks God, well, Saul going to come, Saul coming to get me. And, and God says, yep, he's coming. And, and David says, well, will the town of Kyla betray me and, and give me to Saul? And God says, yeah, you betcha they will. So David gathers his men and they hightail it out of there. And, and would you believe it? When, when Saul hears that David's gone, he doesn't come. And so Kyla doesn't betray David. And so the, Heiser concludes that the two things that God foretold would happen didn't happen. And for this, this is a proof against predestination. So 
God doesn't foreordain things that would happen. He only foresees contingencies and possibilities. And well, I, I find this very troubling, but it's, it's very, it's integral to, to his view of the divine council because the divine council is, is a council in rebellion, both of men and angels rebelling against God. And, and he has to, he has to uh, say that they're morally free in order to do this. And in, in general, I, I found Heiser's exegesis to be a little bit lacking. I mean, that, that's just a, an example. One of the things that you've taken from the work of James Jordan, as you've mentioned, is the framework of priest, king, and prophet. And I'd be interested to hear you flesh out a bit more how that priest, king, prophet paradigm helps us to understand, first of all, how the divine council works, and then how human beings are formed to be participants within it. Yeah, well, the the progression of priest, king, prophet, I think, uh, is a progression of maturity. And this is something that uh, Jordan has covered a lot in uh, various writings and, and lectures. But you, you start as a priest, and then you graduate to kingship, and then the and then you gain the status of a prophet. And this is, I think, the, the history of humanity. And the prophet really is, is somebody who is a member of the council, somebody who is in God's close confidence. And, and we see this in, in various places in, in Jeremiah where, where God says, well, um, have you, who, which, which of these prophets have stood in my council, right? If they'd stood in my council, then they would have proclaimed my words. And Amos, who, who uh, in Amos, God says, you know, I, I don't do anything, you know, without first telling my prophets because, you know, they're my close counsel. Um, so, so the, to be in the council is a matter of maturity. God creates man as his image. And I think it is as his image rather than in or bearing you know, man doesn't have an image of God. He is the image of God. So God creates man as his image and the telos of man, the end goal is for him to be the divine counselor, but man has to mature. Humanity has to mature into that role. Yeah, I'm curious, is that part of um, the, the paradigm that somebody like Heiser is using or the others who are working on this? Is the divine counsel theme part of, uh, uh, of an anthropological development? Yes. Um, though, as, as I said, uh, Heiser sees man and angels as equal sharers in the image. So it's interesting. It, it's actually very confusing reading Heiser. And I, I was looking back on him uh, even just in the last few days, trying to review and, and see, like, am I really reading him right? And the thing is, he sees the, the council as kind of a mirror council. So you have man in charge of the council on earth, and then you have the divine council, that the angels or spirit beings, I guess the, the Elohim is, is the, the term that he, he prefers to use. The gods are the counselors of the heavenly council. So you have this, this kind of mirror council, and he, he tends to say that man is going to inherit the, uh, the rule of earth. Right and the rule of of the earthly council and he and he he keeps specifying this earthly council and uh, and then 
well, okay, Jesus becomes man. And then so he's not going, so he's going to bring humanity into the family of God and to, to bring humanity into the divine council of Elohim and introduce them and, and, and not be ashamed of them. But, but how, how this, how this is structured, you know, what does the council divine council, the council of Elohim, do they remain as kind of an, an equal, an equal council in heaven and one on earth? Um, it, it's really ambiguous and it's really hard to nail down exactly how he envisions this, but that's, that's definitely the picture that, that we get. Yeah. So Paul's claim in first Corinthians uh, that you shall judge angels. Uh, does that figure into his understanding of the relationship between? Yes. Yes. He would say, he would say you will judge the disloyal angels. Okay. So the de- defeated disloyal ones who are, who are ruling the nations right now. Right. And then, uh, you know, uh, for a little while lower than the angels and then Jesus as the man is exalted above the angels. Uh, what, what does he, what does he do with that? Or is that, that's the point where you say it's confusing what he's, what he's aiming for. Right. Right. Um, he first applies that to Christ. So he, he keeps saying Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Right. So he, he never he never relates it back to creation, which which I think is is the context of Psalm eight is that man was made, you know, created for a little while or a little lower than the angels. And Hebrews translates it a little while lower than the angels. And um, so so he relates it to Jesus and in his incarnation. He was made a little lower than the angels. And then he does say that that humanity is going to be, you know, the human council is going to be raised above angels. The, the thing that's ambiguous is that uh, he seems to want to make a distinction between angels and the Elohim of the divine council. So it, it, so sometimes he uses angels in a general sense to mean all spirit beings, because I mean, I, I think that's how, how the, uh, the New, Te- New Testament uses the word angels, right? In a general sense to mean all spirit beings spiritual beings and uh, heiser wants to draw this distinction between the elohim the gods and the angels sometimes so when he says that well man is going to be elevated above the angels that sounds great you know you're like yeah okay this is this is good and then and then he paints this picture of well jesus is going to bring us into this council of his elohim and then and then we're going to join the family and it's going to be one big happy family of angels and or Elohim and and man, and so that that's where it gets a little bit confusing and 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 ambiguous. Hey Chris, how do you see this fleshed out? Say in the epistles, Pauline epistles, general epistles. We mentioned already uh, that the Book of Revelation, the drama there is that the angelic uh, rulers council gives way to the to the church, um, but. I guess the reason I'm asking this is I'm wondering also maybe second part of that question is how should a a church member uh, think about the divine council and their relation to it or place in it kinds of practical uh, implications for uh, Christians today? Yeah. Well, I think the divine council in the epistles is uh, really fleshed out in in um, especially Hebrews, 
And as we've, we've just talked about how, how man is created a little lower than the angels, but then is exalted. That's his, that's his destiny to be exalted above angels, but only in Jesus Christ. And, and so to, to have, to realize that, that end goal of, of what humanity is supposed to be, um, you must be in Jesus Christ. So, and that's, and that's the first thing. Um, I think uh, also, Paul goes into uh, in Colossians, especially um, this language of of Christ overcoming the the uh, principalities and powers and the powers of this world, and in His uh, death and resurrection, being the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, and uh, in all things He's preeminent. So, so Christ has really taken this place. I mean, we we only get to be exalted to our the realization of our destiny because Christ has been exalted. And that that's the first thing. Um, but then Christ also invites us into this count as this council invites us to to rule with him. And I think that's you know what revelation is about is that Christ exalting the saints to to the throne to rule with him and especially those who have suffered and the martyrs and, and so forth. But um what we, you know, what that looks like, I think is, is actually a very concrete thing. You know, we don't have to wonder only, I mean, there, there is going to be an eschatological form, but we don't have to wonder like, what's this going to look like? I think we, this is something we should, should be seeing every week, right? This is when, when we, when we go to church, when you go into the liturgy and, and uh, we have communion with, with our Lord. And as we, especially gather in corporate prayer. Uh, one of the things that, that the prophet, the counselor does is that he intercedes for, for the world and he intercedes for God's people, especially. So Moses is the prophet par excellence. And the reason he is the prophet par excellence is because he intercedes for Israel. When God says, I'm going to wipe out Israel Moses says, well, no, what about your name? What about the, the glory of your name? Um, what will the nations think? And, and God relents. And this is what our duty is as, as a body of counselors now to go into God's presence as the council and to petition him um, about things in the world, things that are, they're happening in the world. You know, God, what, what, what's happening with the, uh, with abortion, what's happening with, uh, with, uh, you know, the secularization of, of society and, and so forth, you know, and, and petition God to, to work in history and to, to display his, his, his power and to exalt his people to, to save the, uh, the persecuted and, and so forth. And I think that's, that's what being the council looks like in church and then and then we'd receive the empowering of the spirit to go out into the world and to carry out god's decrees in the world as as the divine council what do you see as some places in scripture where we get a window into the operation and the form of the divine council and um, what would be the specific passages or teachings in the epistles or elsewhere that you would point to well, in the Old Testament, we, we find uh, pictures of the divine council 
um, mostly in an angelic sense. Um, so we see, I think we see pictures of it in Job and especially first Kings where Micaiah goes into the council and, and he's a prophet. So that means he's in the council. Um, and, and God is asking his counsel, well, um, I'm going to do something about Ahab. What, what should we do? And, and all the counselors, um, come up with suggestions. And so God tasks one to go and deal with Ahab to be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. But Micaiah himself is also a counselor and he goes and he also has a word from the Lord, which is, which is the truth, uh, the spirit of truth, which is interesting that God sends Micaiah to over, to overrule the, uh, the lies of, of the other counselor. But, um, but I think, you know, those, those are the clear pictures in, in the, the old Testament in the new Testament. Um, in the new Testament, we see, I, I think we see the, uh, the people of God elevated in, in revelation. I think we see in, in, uh, in second Peter, I think we see, um, the, the people of God called glorious ones, um, and in Jude and so forth, that the people of God now have have a status in Jesus Christ that is an elevated one above above what they had in in the old covenant, and you have kind of hints of what this is going to be. For instance, in um, in Numbers eleven, when when Moses brings the seventy elders of Israel to the tent of meeting and they're all filled with the spirit um, and they all prophesy, which, you know, again, to, to prophesy and to be a prophet is to be a member of the council. They all prophesy, but they don't keep prophesying. And, uh, and so this is a, this is kind of a foretaste, a, a taste of things to come. And, and there are two, two of the, the elders are prophesying in the camp and Joshua asks Moses to, to please stop them. And, and Moses says, are, are you, are you uh, jealous for my sake? You know that that I that I'm going to be the prophet. Are you jealous to to uh, to defend my my uniqueness? He says, "I wish I wish all of God's people were prophets, and His Spirit would be upon them." And uh, and this really is, I think, answered in in the uh, in in Pentecost is that God pours His Spirit about uh, out on on all his people in, in, in quoting Joel, it, it pours it out on all flesh and sons and daughters and and, and all of God's people become prophets. Um, and to, to say that they all become prophets means to uh, is to say that they all become counselors and those who are in the close counsel of of God. Uh, I think we also see it in the Gospels when when uh, Jesus says, you know, I, I'm telling you what I'm doing because, because you're, you're not my, I don't call you servants or slaves, but I call you friends. Those, and friend doesn't mean in the context, doesn't mean like a buddy, right? We we're drinking buddies. So I tell you what I'm going to do. No, it's, it's, you're my close friends, my counselors, those who are, are close to me in my counsel. So I tell you what I'm going to do and no longer I call you slaves, but friends. Um, and I think 
these are the um, the indications um, we see in the New Testament of of what it means to be a counselor. It seems to me there's a a needle to be threaded here, as it were. On the one hand, there are many who take the idea of the divine council and run with it into ancient Near Eastern myths and a sort of um, vision of the council that is very similar to the ones that you'd have around Baal or some of the other gods. And on the other hand, you have those who are very nervous seeing this element in scripture, seeing it as less than a fully Christian, mature view of who God is. God is all powerful, all knowing, all wise. Why does he even need a council? Isn't this a sort of mythological element that is adapted to the society, but isn't really befitting for the one who we worship, who rules all things, upholds all things by the word of his power? How can we avoid both of those extremes? What is a way in which we can bring our understanding of the divine council into clear correspondence with an orthodox doctrine of God and avoid the myths on the one side and then the demythologization on the other? Uh, well, I think, I think is the main thing is to, to stick to, to the word of scripture and, um, and and yes, I, I I love looking at ancient Near East literature. Um, and and actually, I, I do have Heiser to thank for some of that. It's like it's it's fascinating stuff when you read Heiser. But I always come back to well, what is what is what is the scripture telling me? And and I think if we we understand what man is and what God has created man to be, um, then we can kind of thread that. Uh, it's not that God needs advisors, you know, God, God has a council of, of, uh, of three persons within himself and, you know, he has fellowship, father, son, and spirit, and he doesn't need anything outside of himself in an ontological sense. Right. Um, he didn't create man because, oh, I, I just need a, a counselor to tell me you know, to advise me, but he, he created man in, in love and in his, his grace so that, so that we could be brought into his counsel. So it it really is, it really is an act of grace to, for us to be, to be brought into that. Yeah. It's, it's God's condescension to us to, to say to us, like to Abraham, Hey, I'm going to do this thing in the world uh, what do you think? And and for us to to say to God, to be able to say to God, oh, you know, don't don't be angry with us. We think you should do this. And and I think those are those are the threads. The, those are the ways that we can we can thread that. Uh, I know we we haven't even talked about giants. <laughs> and let's let's do <laughs> talk about giants, Chris. Oh, well, that, that's the thing. So, so many people come in, into this, uh, the divine council thing. It's like, well, we want to hear about the giants and, and the Nephilim. And, and those are this kind of the, the spectacular kind of sensationalized aspects of, of things that you run into in the divine council uh, literature. And, and, and definitely I, I will look at, um, Genesis six. I don't know if I want to go into all of it right now, but uh, it, it can get 
we can go off the deep end on that. But that, the, the thing is, the, the thing I want to emphasize is that the giants and the Nephilim aren't aren't what the divine council is all about. Um, but if we want to kind of circle back and and uh, t- uh, relate that to what Heiser is is doing, he, he relies not only on on the ancient Near East sources, but but also the uh, the pseudepigraph uh, sources, especially Enoch, and and relies very heavily on Enoch um, to to paint a picture of not only what the council is, but what it's doing, what it's been doing, how the angelic council uh, works and has has rebelled and so forth, and and I'll. Yeah, you know, I'll have to deal with Enoch, and I'll have to look at that. But um, but it's it's not it's not the point of emphasis in in the whole theme, um, and it's not something that I think we should emphasize. I mean, there are giants. There, there's uh, Goliath and the Anakim, and so forth, and and uh, and Og, and and what's happening there, and. It is an interesting thing, but we can get caught up on it and and go down rabbit trails that that probably are not not as fruitful as as some other biblical theology threads. I want to go back to something that you alluded to um, toward the beginning of your discussion, which is uh, about the uh, creation of man in the image of God. But it sounded like you were denying that angels are also created in the image of God. Unpack your reasons for that. If I if I got that conclusion right, can you unpack your reasons for that? Yes. Well, I think man is made as the image of God, and this is kind of a point of of Hebrew grammar there. But um, I think man is the image of God. He doesn't have the image of God, or he isn't kind of located in the image of God in some sense. Um, so what this means is, if you look at the word uh, image, salem, um, throughout Scripture. You find that usually, usually it's used to to talk about idols, which is which is disturbing, right? What what does it mean that in Genesis is is really the only place, probably the only place I can think of off offhand that it's used in a positive sense that man is the image, right? And and throughout the prophets, the prophets are 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 mocking images, right? Well, well the the uh, the point to to understand there is that is that man is the image and so idols cannot be the image it's a an act of rebellion to form something out of wood or or stone and then to say this is this is my god and not only that but but this is where where i am going to go into some ancient near east uh context is that uh the nations would form an image and then they would open its mouth they had a ritual to open its mouth because, you know, I think they have this cognitive dissonance. They, they know that a stone image can't talk and can't speak or can't, can't hear, can't smell, can't do anything, can't eat. And so, so how do you get this? How do you get to a point where you can say, well, this image is my God. And the way that they do it is they open its mouth. They, they have this whole ritual where, where they, they uh, they have incantations and they take it to different places and garden before installing it into the temple, and so this image, once its mouth is open, this image is the image, the representation of of the deity, and can be can be identified with the deity, 
you know, so what, whether that be uh, uh, Marduk or, or Asher or, or so forth, what's happening there? Well, they're reversing, they're reversing what, what God has done. They, they they're com- completely turning it on its head because God formed man as his image. And then God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and opened his mouth. And, you know, God is the one that, that opens our, our, our mouth so that, you know, our, our lips so that our mouth can declare his praise and who, who cleanses our mouth with, with the, uh, the altar fire in Isaiah six and so forth. So, so what the nations are doing is a complete reversal of, of what we see in, in Genesis. Now, how, how are, how does this relate to angels? Well, if, if man is the image is the representation of God on earth, then nothing else can be. God doesn't have multiple images. <clears throat> Animals can't be his image. Um, and I think angels cannot be his image. They're, they're not to be worshipped. They're not to be. They're, uh, their realm is the heavenly realm. And in heaven, you don't have an image per se because God himself is on the throne in heaven on earth is the, the, the model after the heavenly pattern. So on earth, you have man as the image. The pagan the- nations clearly had a polytheistic divine council. Um, the biblical view is very clearly, it's a monotheistic divine council, but beyond that, it's also a Trinitarian one. Um, how can we understand the way in which our understanding of who God is changes our picture of the divine council and makes it differ from those of the surrounding ancient Near Eastern um, nations? Maybe I'm not understanding right. In what way do you would you say that that the nations have a Trinitarian one? No, the nations have a polytheistic. Oh, oh, okay, right. So, okay, so our our view of God is Trinitarian as opposed to the nations having polytheistic. Yeah. I think um, one of the things uh, that I would point to is, is how we take um, Genesis one twenty six and, you know, let us create man in our image. Um, and th- this is going back to the image of God. I think there's, there's something that we, we see there that God is, is a plurality and, and typically these days, you know, mo- many scholars will say that, well, that's God addressing his counsel. Let's create man, you know, addressing the angels. And, and I, think, I think that's incorrect. I, I think that's God, um, that's, that's intra-Trinitarian speech, which, which, is, which is not clear in the Old Testament. Um, it doesn't become clear uh, until, until Christ comes. Uh, and and reveals that to us, but but I think it's a hint because God says, "Let us create man in our image." Well, in whose image are we are we created? Uh, are we created in are, are angels the co co uh, pattern of of man's of man's uh, what what man is modeled after? I, I don't think that's that can be the case, especially if we understand what image is as as the representation of the deity in the sanctuary, um, 
is is man the representation of the angels as a deity i i think that's that's something that we can't can't that's that's a place that we can't go we can't say that um man is the image of god and and so whatever that means in, in a full sense and i don't want to say whatever that means because i think we know what that means we we because we see christ that's that's the goal, the end goal in the telos of what it means to be the image of God. God or God becomes man. He's Jesus is, is the incarnate God, but he's also the image of God, as, as Paul says in, in Colossians. Um, I think we need to look at the whole of scripture to see what God is and how, how God reveals himself throughout history and especially how he reveals himself in Christ. I don't know if that, that really answers the, the, the polytheistic view of the pagan nations, I think is a distortion of, of what we have in scripture. So you have in the uh, Canaanite pantheon, you have El, who is a high God, and you have Baal, the Lord. <laughs> Baal means Lord, right? His son, who is the prince, Zibel over the whole land or the earth. And I think these are distortions of, of, uh, of what's revealed to us in scripture. Uh, these are, these are myths that um, can be dated to oh, one, one source I, I read said that the, Oh, this is actually Mullen on, on the divine council. It, he, he said that the, the mythology of, of Canaanite hasn't changed. It hadn't changed since 1400 BC. Well, well, that's, well, that's after Abraham, that, that's after Abraham's been all over Canaan, uh, setting up altars and leading people in worship uh, of Yahweh and, and to El Elyon, the, the most high God. And I think so. So what we have in their mythology it becomes a distortion of, of what is given to them. Piggybacking on Alistair's question, um, Christian view of God and how that uh, informs our understanding of the divine council, especially human participation. In it. I'm going to go back to something you said earlier, um, and also I think it's in your paper, and you use a language of God condescending to uh, invite us into the council. Uh, and maybe just a little quibble here, but when I, I bristle a little bit at that condescension language, because it indicates somehow that um, God is doing something other than he really is, uh, that he's superior, um, and that uh, he's somewhat arrogant uh, and haughty, and so he patronizes us by coming down to our level. Um, is it, and, and I don't think you mean it in that way. Uh, but I think the language can be taken in a pejorative sense to be like that, as if God is doing something that's not true to his nature and being. Um, and it, it may be that a better way to think about this is God is in himself, um, has so much fullness, uh, so much uh, uh, fellowship of being, if you will, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that it's just the way he is. If he's going to create, he's going to share uh, his rule, he's going to share his life with his creatures. I, I don't know what. What do you think of that? No, I think I think that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. When I say condescended, God condescends to us. I don't mean that that uh, he's patronizing. He, he's definitely 
not patronizing in a, in a pejorative sense. What, what he's doing is he's lifting us up. Um, and, and I think this, I, I go back to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He becomes man. And, and so to, to bring man into the council is, is not ultimately a, a condescension in that case, but is actually bringing the son of God into the council as head of the council. And then we get to go in with him because we're united to him. Well, thanks Chris, for joining us uh, uh, and uh, sharing some of your research with us. We look forward to uh, the book and the Theopolis exploration series and uh, appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.